Hi, you're listening to a Sydney Writers Festival podcast. The conversation you're about to hear was recorded live as part of the 2022 festival. Enjoy. My name's Sophie Black. Good morning. I'm a writer, editor and head of special projects at the Wheeler Centre. And on behalf of the Sydney Writers Festival, I'd like to welcome you to this very special conversation with Rebecca Solnit on this auspicious morning after. (laughs) Now, what a treat to have Rebecca Solnit with us today of all days. Rebecca Solnit is one of the great essayists of our times, having garnered acclaim for her work on subjects as diverse as feminism, the history of walking, and even the art of getting lost. Her essay, Men Explain Things to Me, is social commentary at its finest, and her seminal Hope in the Dark is a modern classic. Her latest book, Orwell's Roses, is an exploration of nature, pleasure, and politics, inspired by George Orwell's love of gardening. We already know that Orwell's writing was utterly prescient and creepily relevant to our times, but Solnit, in a masterful piece of detective work, digs down to reveal the hope seeded across his work, and in doing so, unearths for us a guide on how to live. Please join me in welcoming Rebecca Solnit. Well, hello. Hello. Um, Rebecca, I just wanted to give you a little bit of a sense of the a vibe in the room, the vibe in the room. So I think there's a little bit of, I'm sensing undercurrents of euphoria. Um, Maybe, maybe a bit of disbelief still while everyone's piecing all of this good news together. It's a bit overwhelming uh, and maybe, maybe a slight hangover here and there. Um, but it's so wonderful to have you in the room with us because we all know that this result would not be lost on you. What does it look like from your end? Oh, my God. Actually, I launched a climate project called Not Too Late on Thursday morning, trying to make the case that literally it's not too late, that, um, you know, this is a decade of decision, that the climate fight is not over, that there's good news. And so this avalanche of good news, you know, two days later is incredibly helpful, you know, um, for making the case. But much more than that, I, I really thought I might be coming on to scold Australia, and instead I'm here to sing your praises and celebrate with you. It is so damn great, <laughs> so damn exciting, and such a reminder that things change, and they change in unexpected ways, and people who think they know what's going to happen um, are proven wrong over and over, and that, for me, hope lies in part in the uncertainty of it all. The uncertainty is the spaciousness in which we must act. It, it is really quite a strange feeling to think that Australia is landing in the good news section. So we're happy to help for your new project. Um, you know, we do what Thank we can. You. We do what we can. Uh, now, I promise that I'm not going to monopolise you for an hour and just talk over the election results. I would like to just go through my phone and feed Bring you headlines. Bring it on. Bring it on. But the thing, the beautiful thing about this book is that it is utterly relevant to what has just happened overnight. And so I think we will sort of thread, those themes will speak to what has happened to this, has happened with this um, election result. So let's, let's, let's go to the book. And I want to read the opening line. In the spring of 1936, a writer planted roses. That is the very first line of this book. What led you to stand in George Orwell's garden some eight decades later in front of those very same flowers? It's a funny chain of coincidences. My close friend Sam, who's a documentary filmmaker, thought he might do a piece about trees, and we both love trees and would send emails and things back and forth. And he's in New York. I'm a San Franciscan. I'm currently sitting on unceded Coast Miwok land, although San Francisco is Ohlone, unceded Ohlone land. Uh, but anyway, um, so we were 
you know, and he was talking about notable people who'd planted trees. And I was like, oh, Orwell planted fruit trees. He has this wonderful essay about it. And Sam was like, well, are they still growing? And I was like, well, let's find out. And I got on my computer, took a few minutes to figure out where Orwell lived. And then, the, you know, he writes an essay about planting things 10 years before and then coming and seeing them thriving and how the planting of something is a gift you give posterity. It's this remarkably hopeful, cheerful essay called A Good Word for the Vicar of Bray, some of you may know. And, you, you know, you go on Google Earth or Google Maps and trees are just green blobs and whether they're fruit trees, a brilliant writer planted in 1936 or something completely different, who knows. So I happened to be on book tour later that year going from London to Cambridge and I took a little detour thinking that I might like be the annoying person peering over the fence to see if those were cock and uh, Cox's orange pippins, apples, you know, or knock on a door and have it slammed in my face, not really knowing what to expect. But this lovely couple um, welcomed me in, broke the bad news to me that the fruit trees had been uh, cut down in the 1990s to enlarge the garden shed. And I thought, well, that's <laughs> the end of the line, story over, we'll report the sad news to Sam. And then in a very offhand way, while making me a cup of tea, they said, oh, but Orwell's roses are still thriving. Would you like to see them? It was Day of the Dead, which is a very big day in the kind of Mexican California I live in. And um, November 2nd, okay, in our side, our hemisphere, you know, the, the roses were still blooming. And it was a wonderful shock to me, both to have such a direct and immediate contact with living beings who had been with, you know, planted by Orwell, connected to Orwell, to feel him so much closer than I ever expected. But also I realized... The question of why Orwell planted roses is a much bigger question. What is the role of beauty and pleasure and joy and the things often dismissed as frivolous, unnecessary, idle distractions in a serious and committed life? And so I was often running from that day to just think about that. And this book is seven sections going in seven directions from that act of a writer planting roses. And it led me to a lot of fascinating places. Joy isn't exactly considered Orwellian. Uh, I think one of his biographies that you cite, the title is George Orwell, The Wintry Conscience of a Generation. What, how did it feel to sort of have this epiphany and to read Orwell's work in such a different way? It was really exciting. In every book I write, of course, I feel like I'm telling a story that needs to be told because it hasn't, but it's often personal or about putting different pieces together. It does, you know, Orwell in some ways is one of the most, or in every way, is one of the most celebrated, renowned writers of the 20th century. I would have assumed there was absolutely nothing new to say about him. But the roses really were just a wonderful question. I started, I had read a lot of Orwell's work, almost all his books, a huge percentage of his essays. I knew him, I knew the written work pretty well, but I kind of accepted the ambient idea that Orwell was grim, austere, pessimistic, this kind of hollow cheek, gaunt, austere figure, kind of, you know, wintry. And he turns out that to have had plenty of spring and summer in him. And so the shock was when I read his diaries and letters is that, Orwell not only took a great deal of pleasure in small, ordinary things, but also organized his life to make sure that they had a big, pretty big place in his life. And he was an avid gardener, keeper of goats and chickens, partly for money. You know, he was raising his own food because he was quite poor in 1936 and selling eggs. But he took great pleasure in the son he adopted in, you know, what he called good, bad books in... Uh, tobacco, a good cup of tea, a proper pint of beer, uh, junk shops, and so many other things. And he really, it was kind of a shock to find out that he was enjoying himself a lot more and that he was a lot more hopeful. Uh, and then there was this real question of kind of what did these things do for him? And it felt really like part, this contact with the natural world, these kind of everyday things kept him grounded and sane and able to do the other work he did, which he once called facing unpleasant facts, and we could also call being one of the great anti-fascists of the 20th century. It's worth 
taking a moment to consider the times that Orwell not only lived through but documented. As you write, his life was shot through with wars. And yet in between the trenches of the Spanish Civil War or being bombed out in the London Blitz, he would find solace in nature. Can you tell us a little bit about the, the, the cottage that he lived in in Wallington when he first planted those roses and what was happening for him in his life then? Yeah, and three major things happened for Orwell in nine, or four things that in 1936, and it's really when he re begins to be the Orwell we know and value. The first is that he takes the assignment to go to the north of England to the industrial wastelands of coal mining, unemployed factory workers and miners, desperate poverty, industrial ugliness of a kind he's never really seen before, and it's a real shock. It really kind of shocks him into becoming a much more committed and aware socialist. And he writes The Road to Wigan Pier, um, uh, that the first half of which is great journalism, the second half of which is a young man spouting off political opinions that are still annoying and naive. <laughs> and uh, the next thing that happens, he comes straight from going down into the coal mines and seeing this really filthy, horrific workplace and landscape um, of coal, something I think Australians have thought a bit about. Um, mm -hmm. that, yes, we'll definitely and, come uh, back to that. And it feels almost like he goes straight from there to rent this to rent uh, this cottage his wonderful bohemian aunt has found for him, his Aunt Nellie, which is about the cheapest place you can get at that point. I forget, but it's a few shillings a week, more or less. And, and, he, and he immediately begins tilling the earth, digging up old boots, planting a garden. And then he's getting ready for the next big thing that's going to happen to him in 1936. He marries the wonderful Eileen O'Shaughnessy, who's sometimes credited with deepening him as a writer and a human being. And she's an, a, a brilliant, witty, funny, wonderful woman who will die too young eight years later. And then the final thing he does um, in 1936 is he goes off to the Spanish Civil War. And, of course, every book about Orwell has a lot to say about... Um, the, his trip to the industrial north, maybe a little bit about the marriage, not much about, you know, and a lot about the Spanish Civil War, not so much about the garden. But the garden feels like both the opposite of the wasteland he's seen and a way to kind of situate himself both practically, because he's going to raise a lot of his own food on and off for a few years, and to do something that brings him great joy as he makes this huge shift you know, also into being a full-time writer in between tilling the potatoes and collecting the eggs after a bunch of jobs he hated, working in a bookshop, um, being a teacher in private schools, etc. So he's really, so the cottage is really kind of where he lands, where he wants to be. It's kind of where his feet are planted, where he can now face the world and be who he intends to be. And it's a year of transformation. Those two experiences in the North and in Spain mature him politically, wake him up to the horror of the horrors of capitalism, of exploitation, and the world isn't ready to think a lot about the, the environmental catastrophe of coal mining, but he's truly shocked by it, you know, and then makes him very aware as the Spanish Civil War gets corrupted by uh, the Stalinist USSR, um, it wakes him up politically in another way as well. So that's really kind of his, his watershed year. And the garden is something he returns, he spends, you know, the rest of his life returning to gardens whenever he can. Uh, he has Jura for a few years. And he has uh, the cottage at Wallington, which is a funny little, probably 17th uh, century workers, farm workers cottage, just like two rooms up, a few, two rooms down, um, outdoor plumbing. Um, but as he makes more money, he moves to the Isle of Jura in Scotland and really begins to set himself up as a kind of gentleman farmer and ultimately has, you know, cows is raising hay for them, a horse, um, et cetera. He's, he is passionate about the countryside and the garden. He says actually, um, when he's asked in 1940 for a biographical dictionary, outside my work, the thing I care most about is gardening, especially vegetable gardening. And he keeps an almost like a housekeeping gardening diary, doesn't he? Yeah, no, he has this, what's called his domestic diary, though he doesn't give it a name, where he just records 
what's going on in the garden, but also the weather and sometimes these curiosities, like what will these caterpillars turn into or what happens if we do this? But they're really, they're not emotional diaries. He keeps separate political diaries. They're really just charting, you know, how, like, for months and months, how many eggs he collected every day, what the chickens are up to, if the worms are on the cabbages, um, milking the goats, etc. So he's very deep in that world. And I think it really grounds him to do this other work. One of the things that's very strong in 1984 is the sense that Winston Smith, his protagonist, is trying to resist this regime, this totalitarian regime of Big Brother. And part of how he does it is to ground himself in his own capacity to remember, to witness, to experience, and in the tactile, sensual, um, material world, the life of the body, the senses, the um, and their perceptions. And so, you know, and I think Orwell was doing the same thing in some ways, that to that this is part of how you do not get swept up in the, you know, in totalitarianism, fascism, and, you know, the cults and things of our time is this kind of independent judgment, independent experience, immediacy, empiricism. Which is so interesting. I think, uh, I think you reference uh, a young communist comes to hang out with Orwell later in his life and is completely bored to death by Orwell telling him about the birds that he kept seeing on their walks. Um, it's interesting to sort of take note of that and what those simple acts, which could be interpreted and were interpreted by definitely some of Orwell's peers as indulgent as, as, re, as retreating into solitude, as if that was a, a selfish act. It's, a, it's worth examining that in the context of Orwell's political work and his peers and the world that he moved in. There was very much a sort of austere rejection of anything as simple as, as fighting for pleasure or for joy or for beauty, wasn't there? There was, there was. There's this very funny moment I kind of cherish where he's writing for a left-wing magazine and a woman writes in to scold him that flowers are bourgeois. And it's such a hilarious reprimand because it's sort of like without flower, you know, life on earth as we know it is the result of flowering plants. Almost everything we eat that doesn't come out of the sea is somehow, you know, or mushrooms is somehow connected to flowering plants, including what, you know, the animals, if you eat animal stuff feeds upon, you know, flowers are, you know, it's a scientist, botanist will tell you made the world in some sense, but it's also scolding that, you know, a good leftist should have no aesthetics, no pleasures, no, no, you know, moments of beauty, etc. And one of the things that I thought I knew, there were so many things I thought I knew. It's one of the joys of being a writer. Your job is often to find things out and even late in life, you can find out you've accepted some version of things. But um, this project led me to the phrase bread and roses, which probably most of you know. And But looking to the history of it, I realized I had never really fully understood it. And what it is, is this radical manifesto that begins first with a wonderful woman trying to make the case for giving women the vote, going on a speaking tour across southern Illinois and the American Midwest, um, she talks about how people should have bread and flowers too. And she's staying on this farm that seems to have only women on it. And the servant on the, the place, a woman named Maggie, says, I really like what you had to say, especially about the bread and, and flowers too. And then the daughter of the farmer asks her to get the mother um, that phrase embroidered on a pillow when, which becomes bread and roses and gets taken up by the labor movement and everybody else. But it's truly this absolutely radical thing. It's this insistence that what we are fighting for as a labor movement, as a fight for the women's vote, is not just that bread, which is the stuff that keeps you from dying, the basic material sustenance, you know, the kind of food, clothing, shelter. But roses means everything else, culture, nature, beauty, pleasure, at um, the time in which to enjoy it, and in doing so, they recognize that human beings, I think, are very complex, subjective creatures that we also need privacy because my roses may be different than yours. And, you know, we need to be able to do those things without being, judged, you know, supervised by the government, etc. So it's this radical manifesto for subjective and aesthetic experience for the complexity of human nature and uh, really quite exciting when I found it out. And 
you know, Bread and Roses is actually an organization here in the San Francisco Bay Area that sends music to institutionalized people, hospitals, prisons, etc. And the fact that, you know, I thought I'd known Bread and Roses all these years without knowing how revolutionary it was, 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 was really something. Because there is, I think we were talking earlier about uh, there's a bit of a phenomenon here, watching what's going on, the results from last night of people not quite believing and not, not and just sort of tightly kind of with their fists still in balls just watching and not quite going there. And we were talking about the fact that there's a sort of, there can be a sort of self-flagellation when it comes to the left and political activism as if to, to seek pleasure or to to retreat from, even from consuming the news at times is, is an act of betrayal. I always think in the United States that I can blame it on the legacy of the Puritans, but since you have a somewhat different history, I'm not sure where it comes from. But yeah, their left is full of um, killjoys. And, you know, <laughs> one of my great, one of the essays I've been waiting to write for a long time and meaning to get around to is called everybody wants to be the police. You know, here in the United States, we've had lots of people talk about defunding the police and opposing the police. But of course, police is a verb as well as a noun and feeling that you have the right to to judge and punish other people is itself kind of an odd thing. Why am I in charge of whether this person is working hard enough on the revolution, you know, and you know, it's a kind of spreading of joylessness. And I think of it often as being very much part of this kind of industrialized culture. You know, the Model T Ford should be rolling off the Ford assembly plant <laughs> every 10 minutes. And of course, these industrial metaphors are about endless productivity, endless commitment and the way that if you use other metaphors, hunters and gatherers, agriculture, you know, the fields need to lie fallow, the well needs to recharge. Just walking around, if you're a hunter and gatherer, you get to know where these, you know, these bulbs are happening or these animals are grazing, that the work becomes much more nuanced and subtle and has a lot of patience and knowledge rather than just cranking it out involved. So it feels like a way that people who even think they're anti-capitalists often get swept up in capitalism as well as policing. And it's something I deal with a lot. I kind of grew up in the left and um, it fucking sucks. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I'm, I'm here to try to provide alternative models, examples, and even hope you know, is seen, and I wrote Hope in the Dark all, uh, 19 years ago and then spent a number of years trying to cheer up people during the Bush era and uh, <laughs> not to just to make everybody feel good, but to keep them motivated, believing that we could win, that what we did was worthwhile, that we had power, etc. And it really, I ended up describing my job um, as snatching the teddy bear of despair from the loving arms of the left, but also <laughs> describing it as despair is a black leather jacket everybody looks good in hope is a frilly pink dress nobody wants to put on because you really expose yourself by being hopeful and it's an odd thing you can predict terrible things which very often don't come to pass and nobody seems to think that you are therefore foolish or deluded or naive i do think i do talk sometimes about a thing called naive cynicism but if you say anything hopeful people will immediately say you're wrong i'm i'm Everybody there, if somebody had told you, if somebody a week ago had predicted these election results, would you be like, oh, you're go home, you're mm -hmm. drunk, you don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> Absolutely. It will never come to pass. Yes. And that really happens with um, kind of auspicious and hopeful and positive frameworks. In terrible things do come to pass. Wonderful things also come to pass. And the suppleness to kind of engage with both of them you know, requires something other than this kind of grumpitude, policing, and joylessness, censoriousness, and, you know, black leather jacket wearing while teddy bear of despair clutching. <laughs> I don't know if we're quite ready to take our leather jackets off yet and put our frilly dresses on. Maybe give it a day. It's been a really long decade. Uh, let's talk about that. Let's talk about coal. Could you put on... Could you put on a really bright scarf with that jacket? <laughs> Maybe we'll but let's start talk about with a coal. scarf. We'll start with a scarf. 
Then we'll team the jacket with the frilly dress and then we'll slowly take the jacket off. We'll, we'll baby steps. Cool. Um, cool. As you know, this country and its politics has been in the grip of coal for decades. Uh, we have just seen the political demise of a man who held an actual piece of coal aloft in Parliament. Uh, tell us a bit about Orwell's documentation of the coal industry and what literally drew him down into the coal mines. And so Orwell went to Wigan, which is this, uh, you know, outlying part of Manchester, and was looking at the unemployed, at poverty, at how people were passing their times, at how the relief worked, at the conditions of their house. But twice, he, you know, and the whole landscape, he'd never seen anything like it. He'd grown up in southern England, which is the kind of pretty, flowery, cardy country, plus London, more or less. I know, okay, it does, you know, we all know it. It did have industrial goods, but he'd never really seen this industrial wasteland. The way that, like, everything was dead, the water was black, the landscape was black, uh, the soot from coal had stained every building, the miners came up black from the mines, and uh, only got a chance to bathe fully once a week. So they lived, you know, kind of covered in in this stuff. And uh, so he realized that completing his research meant going down into the mines and they were tremendously hot. Uh, people, well, at that point, you know, and then and children had worked there and it was, it could, people often worked semi-naked or almost naked altogether. And... Um, you know, for which for me is also about the terrifying vulnerability of being in these places with toxic gas, explosions, collapses, you know, where you're using uh, iron implements to chip out, you know, this hard, hard, filthy stuff, nothing to filter what you inhale, nothing, you know, and the miners would eventually from hitting their heads so often on these tunnels, it would only be 18 inches high or so. He said their foreheads were veined like Roquefort because you cut your forehead, the coal gets into it, and you've got a kind of tattoo. So he saw just the physicality of how horrible it was and um, reflected on how essentially the whole, you know, the whole world at that point ran on coal. It's what, you know, and I think people have forgotten that a lot of the world, the U.S. and the U.K. as well as Australia, you know, it's what ran railroads, what ran factories, what generated electricity not so long ago. And it was so filthy. Eng London was having those foul uh, fogs that it was the Great Fog of 1952 killed, I think they say, 9,000 people because it was so toxic. But he saw just that this was poison and that it was very easy not to think about and that, you know, the men could come around and load up his coal chute in Wallington in his pretty cottage and he could pretend not to know what coal was, where it came from. I was fascinated by a couple of things, partly just Orwell's engagement with something which was, of course, a labor issue, but was also an environmental issue. He saw it was poisonous, filthy, destructive, um, just hideous and somehow deeply amoral to him. But also that the, you know, I, let me stray since meandering is what I do as a writer and digressing into the Carboniferous, which I, I, I find kind of what we've done in the age of fossil fuels fascinating and horrifying that what plants laid down as coal oil and gas over hundreds of millions of years, we've burned up to a significant extent in, you know, the last 150 years, um, thereby doubling the amount of uh, carbon and carbon dioxide in the upper atmosphere and creating runaway climate change. And of course, coal is the filthiest of those three and the one that some parts of the world, like the U.S., have to some extent weaned ourselves off. But of course, we have our own coal barren tragedy. We have one man in the U.S. Senate, Joe Manchin, who literally is a coal baron, profits off coal, it protects coal, who stopped Build Back Better, which was essentially Joe Biden's version of the Green New Deal. It was a half trillion dollar project that would have revolutionized our response to the uh, climate crisis and done many wonderful things. And Joe Manchin was the no vote among the Democrats. And really because, you know, he loves coal more than human life loves his profit more than the future. And it's really shocking the kind of 
lack of empathy and imagination of the the fossil fuel barons who are calling a lot of the shots and uh you know about the state of the world because the there's often this we're all equally responsible for climate change and here I should footnote this and say I I have been working a lot on climate change and that for a while I write about it I'm on the board of Oil Change International and a few other groups just founded not too late and etc so I pay a lot of attention to this stuff and there's a very popular oh we're all guilty because we all do these things but most of us want to see climate action most of us would be happy to live in a world of renewable energy most of us would be happy to see the fossil fuel industry shut down most of us understand that it's every kind of poison from political poison to literal poison um you know it is a minority um you know the morrisons and mansions the exons and chevrons and putins who are bringing us this and who we have to build movements strong enough to um successfully oppose i digressed it it is quite extraordinary to think we might be on the cusp of seeing actual real change on that in this country which no one ever would have guessed at it is quite remarkable though, though that orwell had this instinctual horror of coal he recoiled from it and as you say in the book he could never have known the actual long term implications of coal um but he did he did flag that disconnection already that people had back then between what was in their fireplace the grate that was heating them and the conditions mm-hmm. that it was created in and you extend that to your exploration of quite literally roses don't you yeah no it felt like i had known for a long time that roses sold in the us the great majority of them come from um environmentally and humanistically brutal conditions in Colombia and i happened to have a wonderful friend uh my friend Nate Miller who had actually spent some time investigating the rose industry so he agreed to meet you know go to bogota with me and bring me around and miraculously we got inside one of these places i'm not sure whether to call them sweatshops or plantations or what and uh you know and and for me it was partly about something we deal with all the time in the contemporary world things that are aesthetically beautiful and morally hideous you know stuff made in inhumane conditions stuff that's hideously environmentally destructive etc and of course the roses are both um you know they have worked very hard as a lot of big industries in uh the global south have to uh you know and in the poor countries to find ways to give workers no rights no no um benefits no disability no pensions um and uh and they me- sort of mechanize the work so people perform re- repetitive gestures until their bodies wear out with carpal tunnel and um shoulder injuries etc and then they just throw them out in their 30s and hire more teenagers it's the biggest employer of women in colombia and it was just like these horrible green houses covered in plastic with just what felt like miles of roses they're so big the roses were kind of doing this vanishing point thing uh to the horizon um you know of the greenhouse or to the, you know into the distance um they can put i think 5000 boxes of 330 roses a piece all processed by these workers onto a 747 to fly from Bogota to Miami and the idea of 747s carrying nothing but roses 1.6 millions of piece how alienated can a flower get and of course people got buy them for mother's day and valentine's day and to give to their sweethearts and decorate their homes and it's very easy to not see the you know the workers the 747 the carbon emissions the the profound alienatedness you know and you could say that about lots of things iPhones and sweatshirts and a lot of food products and things but because roses are supposed to be this lovely symbol of nature and beauty uh felt particularly compelling to track them down so yeah so be careful about your roses i have no idea do you, if you grow them domestically in australia i know most of the most of europe gets them from northern africa 
I, I confess I don't know where we get them from, but I am very much thinking of the red Valentine's rose stuffed into a plastic tube and um, sticky tape to a white teddy bear. So I'm pretty sure they're not <laughs> organic local flowers. Uh, yeah. I think um, I also want to talk about Orwell and language, uh, given that we were feeling pretty bruised and battered after a particularly mind-numbing election campaign. And one of the extraordinary things about the result overnight is that it seems like it was an utter repudiation of politics as usual and pedestrian politics, uh, which is extraordinary. Let's talk a minute for about let's talk for a minute about Orwell's passion for the beauty of language, or more accurately, the beauty and the ugliness embedded in language. You write in the book that Orwell was passionately committed to language as a contract crucial to all other contracts. Words should exist in reliable relationship to what they describe, whether it's an object or an event or a commitment. What happens when this contract collapses? You get Donald Trump. <laughs> okay, I will. Uh, there's more, you know, or you get Vladimir Putin, or you get, uh, you know, and one of the things that both feminism and this plunge into Orwell, and I could add four years of Trump taught me, is that authoritarians don't just want to control the economy or the people around them or the military, et cetera. They want to control facts, truth, science, history. They see these things as rival power systems they have to conquer to have full power. And so there's a way truth is inherently democratic. You may perceive things I don't. You may, not, may you know, um, the truth doesn't belong to any one person. Nobody can control it the way that you can control lies. And so he saw lies as broken contracts, using language which, when used honestly, builds bonds between us. And, you know, I had postmodernism. I know we don't know everything and language is slippery, but you can at least acknowledge that you don't know, that it's not clear. One of the beautiful things about Orwell reporting on the Spanish Civil War is his making very clear that from where he was in the trenches in one particular place, he didn't fully understand the war. He didn't see what was coming. He didn't, you know, he didn't have got the view of a god above. He had the view of one guy in the trenches. So you can be honest about the limitations of your own perception. But I think that that democracy and truthfulness, accuracy, independent news media, um, the freedom of scientists to do their work without interference, which has been, was a huge issue in Stalin's um, USSR and has been messed with by American presidents in recent years. Um, and of course, the fossil fuel industry with their climate denial, which is science denial, you know, um, is a huge problem. So Orwell was standing up, both trying in his own work to use language as honestly as possible, including saying, I'm not sure, I don't know, when that's the thing to say. He wasn't never doing the false omniscience that so many pundits love. And he was constantly trying to find ways to understand and attack the misuse of language, whether it's the kind of um, circumlocutionary, evasive language of bureaucrats and academics defending the indefensible and in the, uh, or um, the destruction of language without right lies, um, kind of mind-numbing propaganda. Uh, one of the things people don't know, and a lot of people know that 1984 does a lot with idea, um, the 2 plus 2 equals 5 equation, which of course like is designed to break your brain, you know, like this this is four fingers, you know. and um, But it was a reality in Stalin's USSR. They were had a five-year plan. They decided everybody would work very hard and do it in four years. And there were actually all these like neon signs and posters about two plus two equals five, which inspired Orwell, as did the profound repression of truth, whether it was um, scientific, suppressing scientific fact, dissident voices, constantly revising history, etc. And of course, Hitler's Germany, um, you know, Franco, Spain, Mussolini's Italy, were all doing similar things. So Orwell saw how language can be misused and saw it 
as a kind of immorality, the misuse of a tool that's made to connect us, to make us equal. If I tell you something, then we both know, you know, if I say the roses are blooming. But if I've lied to you, then you think you know something, and I know that you don't know. And we're alienated from each other. And so I think he was also really interested in that kind of fracturing of social relationships and that alienation in the way that lies create separate, you know, communities of information, people who believe the lies, people who know it's a lie but don't know what the truth is, people who are actively controlling and pumping out the lies and stuff like that. So he saw just how how destructive lies were and how essential they are to authoritarianism and said that even if authoritarians were, you know, succeeded fully, they would never stop lying because it's inherent to who they are. You know, they need to be a rival system to truth, to fact, to science, um, which threaten them in some ways. We can see that now with Putin lying spectacularly about why he's in Ukraine, what Ukraine is, what the history is. You know, the Ukraine is not a real country. It's a country full of Nazis. Zelensky, the grandson of Holocaust victims, is a Nazi. Um, they're winning, but there isn't. But it's not really a war, and so forth and so on. And of course, the uh, the the man who coined the term Big Brother could never have imagined the kind of tools that someone like Putin has now to spread disinformation. As a writer and activist, do you watch how the internet has helped to split those communities and silo information? I do, and I have to say, I am here in the San Francisco Bay Area. I used to be very proud of where I was from. I thought we're the, you know, the birth of the environmental movement with the Sierra Club in 1892, Harvey Milk and gay rights and queer poets and, you know, feminism and uh, all these good things. But we are, you know, we have we are now a wholly owned subsidiary of Silicon Valley, which is one of the global power centers along with Wall Street and, you know, the U.S. military and et cetera. And they are evil would be the very short summation. I have watched it all grow, seen Google and Facebook and et cetera decide on a model that requires harvesting or information to sell, um, you know, first just to advertisers and commercial interests, but then to political interests. Brexit, the election of Trump, you know, Putin's meddling in the U.S. election, genocide in Burma, Myanmar, you know, so much of this is connected to tools Silicon Valley has freely handed out because they're profitable and not reined in when they see horrific things happening. There's an absolute amorality about these um, oligarchs of California. And, uh, you know, in some ways they've destroyed consciousness itself, whether it's teenage girls' body images and kids' access to really miserable porn or, you know, the spreading of disinformation about vaccines and, um, you know, the stolen election theory of the American right at... um, uh, Jair Bolsonaro, the rainforest destroyer and enemy of climate action in Brazil, was a YouTube star. YouTube is how he became a person who could who could build all this power and get elected, you know. And so much, you know, so much monstrosity goes on unchecked because it's profitable. And uh, so, yeah. And I often say that, you know, what what Google, Facebook, you know, Apple, etc., have on us. Stasi, the KGB, the FBI never dreamed was possible. And it's so much more information than even Big Brother in 1984. They have the two-way TV and a lot of other surveillance, but, you know, they they don't have some of the tools. And your iPhone, if you don't turn off location services, knows every place you go. You know, there's trackers hostile people can put on your car. And everything you've clicked on on your computer can be recorded. And uh, everything you've bought, every page you've gone to. And Google reads your mail to target you with advertisements. And, uh, you know, it's a, it's a dystopia... I'm got it is so we'll just absorb that for a moment. We all know that it's true, but we still we still accept the cookies. 
Uh, I'm yeah. going to give the audience an opportunity to ask some questions. So I'm just going to let you all know that there is a microphone on either side of the stage. And so if you want to start to make your way down while I ask a few more questions of Rebecca, and we might get some uh, questions from our live and local audience as well. Um, but Rebecca, you, you write at the end of the book that as you researched this book, you had one foot in Orwell's world and you kept thinking about the people uh, in our world now and our time now who were doing Orwell's work. You are someone who is doing Orwell's work as a, as a prolific documenter of our age. You are immersed in uh, the climate movement and you are unflinching, but I can't imagine that that doesn't take a toll. We've talked a lot today about what fortified Orwell. What fortifies you? I get to see my great nieces tomorrow, and I'm actually in a friend's house today because another great niece just graduated from college against one, uh, terrible odds with incredible determination. The natural world, although I have to say I took a hike today, and I know Australia's been suffering from a surfeit of water, but I was hiking by a creek that this time of year should have water in it and is dry, and I'm braced for fire season. So friendship and particularly the friendship of people with integrity, with commitment, with strong principles, um, who are kind, who, you know, a Buddhist community, uh, my mentor, Roshi Joan Halifax, and, um, you know, and the historical narratives that Hope in the Dark and my subsequent work was built on that convinced me that ordinary people can change the world. Sometimes we win, what we do matters, and... Uh, you know, the work is worth doing. And so trying to find these kind of counter-narratives to the defeatist stuff that is the mainstream fair that seems designed to keep us passive and disengaged by telling us that, you know, it's, well, with climate, it's too late, but also that with everything that, like, it'll never work, you don't have the power, you know, these very important men make all the decisions, etc. So all those things, you know, when I work at trying to cultivate them, because it is easy to get overwhelmed and I ration my attention to the really bad stuff too because I think it's easy to just feel that somehow you're doing something useful by reading every article about the bad things happening to the oceans and I feel like I can be motivated to do my climate work without reading all of them so it's kind of a balanced diet too. It's good to hear, I'm going to write that down. I think we have a question over here on the right. Uh, you spoke about uh, Google and Facebook and the algorithms and tracking our information and what to serve up. Uh, what I've noticed uh, in the past couple of years with COVID and the anti-vaxxer movement, I've got friends who are anti-vaxxers and they're all hooked into Telegram, this uh, communications uh, app that's encrypted uh, built and run by Russians, probably the FSB owns those encryption keys, so they're not truly private. Um, but just lately hearing about how Putin is saving us from all the sex trafficking and uh, bio labs in, in, um, and the money laundering in Ukraine. Ukraine. Uh, and it really seems to be, and how, and when I talk to these friends and say, you know, Hunter Biden's laptop just happened to be found by the Trump administration at the end of 2019 when they were really panicked about the election. Um, but they it's, it's almost like it's, they're in a, a state of coercive control because they've been told if they listen to anything other than what is being served to them in Telegram, they're being lied to. And so you can't even yeah. reach anymore what's going on and I just wanted to know uh, is that something that you're looking at the telegram coercive control not a lot but I am struck that so the guys in Silicon Valley don't have either major their major agenda is just to make as much money as possible which is not a particularly admirable thing but it is more admirable than what China controlling TikTok and Russia you know or the Chinese government, I should say, controlling TikTok, the Russian government controlling Telegram. 
and having its armies of trolls and hackers, et cetera, to try and infiltrate other social media and control the narrative are doing. And this is part of how it gets weaponized. You know, in a sense, they're, they're not, you know, the fact we talk about computer virus, viruses gives us a good analogy. We have not built antibodies to run away um, sort of, you know, social media and what it does. And it's part of a scary new era where, and it's not that people didn't believe crazy stuff in the past, but the way that it can be controlled, weaponized, manipulated is really different. And it, it also connects to corrupted elections in Africa, genocide against the Rohingya people in Burma and, uh, you know, the, the Brexit victory and a lot of major political stuff around the world. But yeah, at the beginning of the invasion of Ukraine, a woman of color I know slightly sent me a completely terrifying message that didn't make sense at first about how we all had to go on Telegram because nothing else was safe. And she actually referred to uh, Dugan, the kind of uh, white supremacist philosopher who's, or whatever, white supremacist propagandist um, who's one of Putin, who's kind of Putin's, um, you know, kind of ideologue. And it was really interesting to see that this person who had been doing good work a few years ago had just been sucked into this, this horrible place, this white supremacist place, among other things, and that she just didn't have whatever equipment it might take to recognize that it was, you know, equivalent to a scam. A scam is usually trying to profit off you monetarily, but we need a term for these things that are trying to recruit you ideologically. Jasmine from Orange wants to know what your next project is, and I, that's a, uh, an opportunity to ask you about the climate project that you've been referring to that you launched just this week, which I believe is called Not Too Late. Is it a nod towards how diabolical the psychology of climate change is and that we need to look at doing things a different way? It's look, Yeah, it's looking at the fact you know, that we're hearing a lot about climate grief and despair. A lot of people literally believe it's too late. And people in, you know, the scientists and people in the movement know that we're in a very terrifying place. We're in an emergency, but that's very different than there's nothing we can do. You know, there's one future. And there's a kind of weird peasant fatalism of the white middle class believing somehow that the future already exists. You know, the dies, the die has already been cast when in fact what we do in the present determines, you know, still with pretty wide parameters about climate, what the future will be. So it's an attempt to address the kind of emotional crisis a lot of people are having, which is often due to misinformation or lack of good information, and to really be a gateway to lead them towards recognizing, because it is not too late, because this is a decade of decision for the climate, um, that we need to act. And the funny thing about it is I had a wonderful dinner party um, with a bunch, you know, Annie and Leonard, who's the head of Greenpeace USA, Saket Soti, who's with an incredible climate project called Resilience Force, um, a number of other friends where we're all going around talking about the kind of introducing ourselves and who, who we who we are, what we're doing. And I was like, oh, I've stopped writing books because I'm going to really try and be a better climate activist. And it's partly the typical left thing of I felt like renunciation must be a good thing. And I told them about the Not Too Late Project, which is a website already up at nottoolateclimate.com. First time I've ever promoted a website <laughs> in an event. You know, social media, Facebook and Twitter so far. It'll be a lecture se or a talk series and um, some other interventions. But all my friends, when I told them about this, just all looked at me and were like, Rebecca, this should be a book. So it'll be a book with Haymarket Books in April called Not Too Late. And, uh, you know, with the subtitle, Thelma, my, my collaborator, who's formerly of 350.org, married to a Fijian climate activist and so based in Fiji, now with the Solutions Project. I think she came up with our title, which is like essentially from despair to possibility, but much more eloquent. I'd, forgot to write it down so I could get it right. <laughs> but so I'm going to do that for a while. And the book is an anthology of many voices because you can't really make the case that it's not too late only by hearing from, you know, a middle-aged white lady in California. <laughs> and uh, But, you know, we've gotten a great response from scientists and activists and uh, 
we're you know we're off and running and so I have another kids books I rewrote Cinderella um, as Cinderella Liberator a few years ago for my great niece Ella and I was like okay her younger sister needs a book and besides which I have the Rackham illustrations I used for reused from his Cinderella for mine. He'd also done uh, silhouette illustrations for Sleeping Beauty. So I have a book called Waking Beauty coming out in November that um, is a kind of contemporary, kind of an updating of Sleeping Beauty and also about what her younger sister was doing during those hundred years she was asleep, and et cetera. <laughs> so love that. I love kids' books. We have another question over here. Thank you. Hi. Yes. Um, Rebecca, yeah. I really like what you were saying about Orwell valuing simple pleasures. And I think in 1984, yeah. you can see that in their absence in this world um, leached of colour and pleasure um, and the, the cigarettes that fall apart and the gin that burns your throat. Um, and I guess on one level, that's an anodyne for the modern world. Um, but also to what extent do you think he was uh, seeing us as allowing those pleasures to slip through our fingers? I think he was seeing that people can, you know, accept terrible substitutes, bad food, bad, bad information, bad government, etc. that they can, you know, we can be corrupted, intimidated, hoodwinked. But I think, and one of the striking things about 1984 that I haven't heard a lot of people point out, but I think you got to the heart of. It's very present in Terry Gilliam's Brazil is the mediocrity. Everything they make seems to be mediocre. And, but they also, Big Brother, you know, the regime also sees joylessness, sexlessness, and anti-sensuality as an essential part of their control, which Orwell makes very clear because joy, passion, sensuality are some of the forms of resistance that Winston engages in. What was stunning for me after I met the Roses, I reread 1984, a book I've been reading since I was a teenager and thought I knew really well and found that the regime intends to create this really bleak um, world, but Winston keeps finding tactile, sensual, beautiful things. The book opens with him pulling out a blank book he's bought to write a diary in at great you know, realizing that by writing a diary, he's probably sealed his fate. But he's really luxurious in the sensuality of the paper of this old book he bought in a junk shop that will become a big part of the book in the act of writing with an old nib pen and an inkwell. And then he, you know, he has these dreams about the golden country, this very ordinary English landscape, but incredibly beautiful to him. And then Julia, the woman he has this love affair with, takes him to the golden country and they, they have sex and it's awesome. You know, and, you know, and there's a number of touchstones um, through the book. She gets real chocolate through some corruption, perfume and makeup. They start to carry on their love affair in a junk shop with a wonderful bed of the kind that people don't sleep in anymore and an old print on the wall. And actually, for me, the heart of the book that never struck me before and that so fit in with my, you know, it was, it was a wonderfully shocked is what he sees out the window of this junk shop in the proletarian district over and over is this stout middle-aged woman singing and hanging out diapers. And she has an extraordinarily beautiful voice, although he calls the song she's singing sentimental drivel. And, you know, she's singing about lost love. And she feels like the person, you know, people often think 1984 is a very dismal book because Winston gets tortured and breaks down and betrays Julia and doesn't seem like he's going to do anything much further. But Winston himself keeps telling us, if there's hope, it lies with the proles. And the one prole who really seems to embody that is this stout woman singing songs about lost love so she clearly remembers the past, which people are really discouraged from doing. And she's hanging out diapers. There's some hope for the future. She's probably taking care of grandchildren. And the last time, just before the secret police break into their love nest and haul Winston and Julia away, Winston looks at her and this extraordinary thing happens. I'm going to try and read the passage. And God, I would have planted you in the audience if I could have, because this, I just think this part of 1984 is amazing. But, um, it struck him for the first time that she was beautiful. It had never before occurred to him that a, the body of a woman of 50, blown up to monstrous dimensions by childbearing, then hardened, roughened by work till it was coarse in the grain, 
like an overripe turnip, could be beautiful. But it was so, and after all, he thought, why not? The solid contourless body, like a block of granite and the rasping red skin, bore the same relationship to the body of a girl as the rose hip to the rose. Why should the fruit be held inferior to the flower? And as you might imagine, I was a bit blown away to find that the central metaphor for 1984 is roses and rose hips. And that recognition of her beauty, her power, at one point, he says she could have been doing this for a thousand years. She appears almost like a goddess, this kind of chthonic earth goddess, and uh, was kind of amazing. And uh, so both the grim austerity and the sensuality as part of the resistance are threaded all through the book. And it was really fun to go back and find a new 1984. And it's one of the things, joys of having been around for a while, is sometimes going back to books I read when I was younger, seeing films again and finding that because I'm different or I'm asking different questions or the world is different, I can see them in a different way. And this time, even 1984 felt quite hopeful. And of course, Margaret Drabble argues that the afterword to 1984, which is a kind of scholarly essay on Newspeak, is evidence that the regime does not, ask, does not last forever. And she borrowed that for The Handmaid's Tale to have exactly the same kind of afterword uh, about how that misogynist, white supremacist, militarized regime she writes about also will not last forever. And she makes it clear it will really only be for a few generations. And look, Morrison didn't last forever either. Hallelujah. <laughs> Bring on the Leonard Cohen. I digress. I Thank you. you for tying that in such a neat bow. And I think we're all ready to go out and sing like that stout middle-aged woman in 1984 now. And please join me in, in thanking Rebecca Solnit. Thank you. You've been listening to a Sydney Writers Festival podcast. If you enjoyed it, don't forget to review us and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and go to swf.org.au for more great content.